All right. Morning, team. How are we doing? Good. It's good to see you guys. You're a little quiet this morning. So uh, before I forget, kids, you guys are dismissed. So preschool through elementary kids, if you are, well, like preschool through fifth grade, they're already gone. They're already gone. So and uh, mid, uh, high schoolers and middle schoolers for youth group, you guys can head out with Pastor Chris uh, as well. Everybody else, uh, if you need a Bible this morning, um, well, if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need a Bible. And we have Bibles that you can use or take home with you. So just raise your hands. And one of the guys will bring one to you. You can use a Bible on your phone. Uh, any Bible is a good Bible. So um, use that just to make sure I'm not making stuff up up here. But uh, it's super good to be with you this week. Uh, we missed you guys terribly last week. Um, I had the privilege of um, performing a wedding ceremony for the daughter of perhaps our very first and dearest uh, Christian friends. We met them just uh, after we came to the Lord uh, last year. So, no, just kidding. A couple years before that. But um, the wedding was not in Monterey, however. It was in beautiful Jackson, Missouri. Now, if you're not sure where Jackson, Missouri is, join the club, because until, uh, until last week, I didn't know either. But it's two hours from anywhere. So, we were there. It was gorgeous. And we had a, a wonderful time, uh, just a neat Christian wedding, a neat group of, uh, just always good to be with the body of Christ, although I will say, admittedly, my favorite part of the body of Christ is right here, and I missed you guys dearly, and glad to be back, uh, and glad to be back this morning in the book of Mark. Um, so we're going to be in Mark 13 this morning, and let's just pray and ask the Lord to bless uh, our time as we jump back into this book today. So Father, we thank you. Lord, we do thank you for the body of Christ, Lord, here and there and everywhere, Lord, where it is gathered this morning. And we just pray, Lord, for all of the churches who are teaching your word this morning, that it would go out with power, Lord, and that um, by your spirit, Lord, that you would just unite us together in the fellowship that we share in Jesus. And Lord, we, we pray this morning as we go to your word, Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, that your spirit would give us understanding, Lord. We pray that man would decrease and that you would increase this morning um, before our eyes. And so we, we pray, Lord, your blessing on this time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So as I said, continuing this morning in the gospel according to Mark, and we are now uh, as we have been, we're in the final week of the life of Jesus. He is just days now from the cross. And when we finished up, finally, at the end of chapter 12, you remember that Jesus had just had that very, very full day of discussion and really debate with the Jewish religious leaders. Remember, there were three different groups that sort of banded together. They took turns trying to oppose him and trap him and trick him with these loaded questions and there as he was trying to teach the multitudes in the temple courts and it ended as we watched Jesus in what we said were his very final words of his public ministry to the multitudes he ended his ministry with this harsh rebuke of these men and uh, really a warning against these men. And we remember that we said Mark gave us kind of an abbreviated account, 
but we said that it was Matthew who gives us the blow-by-blow -blow kind of extended play director's cut. It's the woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, eight different times, and he calls them fools and blind guides and whitewashed tombs. And then he ends, his, uh, ends that with a lament over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then after that, in Matthew's account, Jesus kind of punctuates this very heartfelt plea with what is a very important proclamation. And it actually sets the stage for our text today. It's this verse that really closely connects chapter 12 with chapter 13, because this is what Jesus says at the end of his rebuke of these religious leaders. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this indeed was a most ominous promise. It was a, a most ominous prophecy. And we're going to see today that Jesus will sort of now start to unpack this for us this morning, right? So cleverly, we have entitled this message, Unpacking Ominous Promises and Prophecies, if you could even say that. Jesus promises them that there will come a day when the Jewish people will welcome him and embrace him as Messiah. But in the meantime, he says that his kingdom is going to be postponed. It's going to be pushed back. And most significantly for them, that he says that their temple, right, their wondrous temple is going to be left desolate. Right, a word in the Greek which means abandoned to ruin. And he said this, and then we saw there was that brief little vignette, that private moment where he got some encouragement watching that widow, uh, her very heartfelt giving. And so it's now following that that we read this at the very beginning of Mark chapter 13. It says, then as he went out of the temple, right? So Jesus now, he had departed the temple before, but understand this time he would never return. So he has just formally and publicly denounced the religious rulers, and now he turns his back on the temple, really turns his back on the heart of all worship there in the Jewish religious system, and he now departs the temple, and he will never, ever return here again during his earthly ministry. And it's significant that, you know, Greek language experts tell us this, says there's an emphasis on the idea of that verb, depart. He was going away like one who did not mean to return. And I think that it's so significant because it really reminds us, you remember Ezekiel's description, right? The vision that he had in Ezekiel chapter 10, when Ezekiel records that then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple. And it's an incredible, I think, spiritual picture here of what is happening. Of course, at the moment, it was completely lost on the disciples, 
right? These guys were much more concerned, pretty disturbed at this statement Jesus had just made that this temple was going to be left desolate. And so we now read in the rest of verse 1 that as they walked, so he went out of the temple and one of his disciples said to him, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Right, like they're going to show him how magnificent the temple is. And it may have been that they were thinking, you know, yes, Lord, the, the scribes and Pharisees, they are fools and they are hypocrites. But look at this temple. Right, surely there is something good here. How could it be left, you know, abandoned to ruin? And, you know, you told the Pharisees that the temple was going to be destroyed. Are you sure, Jesus, that you don't want to just walk that back a little bit? You know, look at this incredible structure. Just look at this place. And indeed, the temple was an incredible building, right? The gates were made of brass and the courts were made of marble and all of the furnishings were made of gold. Now, this is the second temple built by Zerubbabel and Ezra after the destruction of Solomon's temple when Jerusalem was carried away captive to Babylon. So then what happened is Herod the Great, when he came on the scene, Herod the Great, remember that Roman ruler who ruled over that part of Israel when Jesus was born, Herod the Great greatly expanded and improved the temple, right? Trying to win favor with the Jews. Herod was a master builder and he built everything with the idea that it was gonna outlast even the pyramids. He wanted his name on people's lips all throughout history, and he wanted to build his name, if you will, into the history books, and he did. He built a number of these incredible projects all throughout the land of Israel, including the Herodian and Masada, both of them these sort of massive desert fortress palaces that still exist there in Israel, and yet the temple itself was his greatest accomplishment. So the, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that for 80 whole years, Herod kept 10,000 workers working on it from about 19 BC all the way until about 63 AD. And after Herod completed it, the temple itself was huge. It was nearly 1,500 feet long and 1,200 feet wide. And the whole thing sat, as you can see there, on this huge kind of a patio that we refer to as the Temple Mount. Now, the Temple Mount was 35 acres in size. Now, that might not mean a lot to you. I'm not a guy that speaks in acres, but I do understand you could fit 12 football fields within the area of the Temple Mount. So this thing was big. And it wasn't just big, of course, it was also beautiful. Again, Josephus tells us that it was covered with these gold plates, so much so that when the sun shone on them, it was blinding even to look at. Where there was no gold, there was marble of such pure white that from a distance, strangers thought that there was snow up on top of the temple. Here's a description that Josephus gives us. He says, viewed from without, the sanctuary had everything that could amaze either mind or eyes. 
overlaid all round with stout plates of gold, the first rays of the sun, it reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who endeavored to look at it were forced to turn away as if they had looked straight at the sun. To strangers as they approached it seemed in the distance like a mountain covered with snow, for any part not covered with gold was dazzling white. So it was big, right? It was beautiful and it was extravagantly expensive. In modern money, scholars have estimated that this temple would be worth about a trillion dollars. That's trillion with a T, right? And that's impressive by any standard in any age. The temple was the center of Jewish life for probably a thousand years, so much so that we see in the Bible, it says that it was customary that, that they would swear by the temple or just speaking anything against the temple could be considered blasphemy. So this was an astounding building. It was an astounding site. Without a doubt, the temple was probably the greatest single building ever constructed. And yet, when Jesus looked at it, all that he saw was empty religion and dead ritual. He was not impressed in the least. And I think it's so important because it reminds us that so often we can be super impressed with things that Jesus is not at all impressed with. They were so impressed with this external thing, but Jesus looked inside the heart of all of it, and all he saw was empty worship and kind of rote ceremony. There was no passion for God. There was no true heart of worship for God, except for what? That one poor widow, that one poor woman who offered her two little mites, right? A buck 75, and yet she offered it sacrificially and faithfully, and that is what impressed him, not this trillion dollar building. And yet we can appreciate right, why the disciples struggled with this statement that Jesus had just made, that this would be abandoned and left to ruin. But we're going to see that not only was Jesus not unmoved, he wasn't unmoved by their argument. It, what he says next now just takes things from bad to worse. So they say, Jesus, look at the glory, look at the beautiful buildings. Verse 2, it says, and Jesus answered, and said to him, do you see these great buildings? He says, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So not only does Jesus not back down on his statement, he actually doubles down on what he said. And now he starts talking about these huge stones all being thrown down, right? So he has just promised this coming and really a complete desolation of the temple. And I think you can just picture at this point their mouths just dropping open at this statement, right? I mean, if the first statement had put them in shock, then this one must have totally traumatized them. These disciples, they were head over heels in awe of this, and yet Jesus, not in the slightest. It's really hard to be impressed when you've come down to earth from heaven. Right? But to the disciples, 
it must have seemed utterly unfathomable that his words could ever possibly be fulfilled. Those buildings, they looked so substantial that they could continue to stand for centuries and centuries. After all, understand, the stones that Jesus is talking about here, which he says are going to be thrown down, these stones were massive. Some of them the size of a school bus, right? 20 feet high, 20 feet wide, 40 feet long. These stones weighed up to 100 tons each. So it was absolutely inconceivable for the disciples, just impossible for them to comprehend how could such a thing happen, right? What series of circumstances could possibly produce that? Even if Israel were to be overtaken by some foreign power, and they conquered the city of Jerusalem, surely no one would destroy the temple. You might put it to another use, but certainly you wouldn't destroy it. And yet that's exactly what Jesus says is going to take place. And of course, it's exactly what did take place, just exactly as Jesus had prophesied that it would. Right? We know from the record of history that these words of Jesus were about to be fulfilled just 40 years after this point. Because beginning in about 66 AD, there was a widespread Jewish revolution against the Romans there in Israel. And the Jews initially enjoyed some successes early on, and yet ultimately the Roman soldiers crushed the rebels. Right? They started up there in the north in the Galilee, and they worked their way down through the south, and during this time, they probably killed or enslaved upward of 100,000 Jews. And by the time we get to AD 70, these are the days of the very final resistance. They brought in the most elite Roman legions who laid siege against Jerusalem, ultimately leveling the entire city, including the temple, just like Jesus said would happen. And during the siege, the very last surviving Jews in the city, they fled into the temple because, of course, it was the strongest and the most secure building in the city. They assumed it to be the safest place of refuge. And it's reported that Titus, who was the Roman commander, he was set to preserve the temple. It was one of the world's wonders, right? He was going to preserve it from being destroyed, probably to repurpose it, right, for the worship of some pagan god of the Romans, and yet one of those soldiers, right, at that point, these soldiers were filled with such rage and hatred against the Jews that once they had surrounded the temple, one drunken soldier threw a torch into it that started a fire that very soon engulfed the entire building, killing the thousands of Jews who were in there, and yet the fire became so hot that all of that ornate gold work started to melt down from the roof, right, from the face, and melted down into the cracks between the stones of the temple. So when it cooled, it solidified, and then the Roman soldiers, remember, you know, the spoils of the battle were part of their pay. And they saw all of this gold that had gone down into the cracks between the stones, so what did they do? Well, they started tearing the stones apart to get at all the gold, and they didn't quit until every single stone had been pulled and thrown down. And we will see these exact stones if and when we ever make it on our trip over to Israel. 
And here I think as Jesus speaks to his disciples, the reason that I'm taking this kind of time with it is I believe that his words were intended not just to be descriptive of what was going to happen in the future, but even more so they are meant to be instructive both for his disciples and for us. Because what Jesus is saying is you see those huge stones? You know, everything you see, so huge, so stable, so foundational, so seemingly permanent, they look like they are going to outlive the ages, but I don't want you to think of them in that way. This destruction that's coming is going to be so great that not one of these things, it's all going to come to ruin. And we're going to see now in the rest of this chapter that Jesus is going to show them that what was true of the temple is also going to be true of our world. And he's going to outline all of these coming events, right? This gives us this kind of prophetic look at what will be the rest of human history from the perspective of heaven and the dissolving of this world to make way for a new one. And in the same way that these disciples looked at these monstrous stones in this magnificent building thinking that it would last forever, we can look around at our world and we can think of those same things, right? Surely it's going to outlive, it's just going to go on and on, and yet the truth is it's simply not going to happen. People look around at the accomplishments of man and they can start to scoff at Bible prophecy and they say, come on, this world is not going to come to an end. Right? Look at the major world cities that we've built. Look at Rome. Look at Rio de Janeiro. Look at New York. Look at London or Moscow or, or Dubai. These are magnificent. And you know what? They may be. And yet just as fully as that temple and as Jerusalem came to an end, so will they. They will come to an end as that final coming tribulation period that precedes the return of Jesus and gives way to his millennial kingdom, this world is built upon the very same things as that temple was built upon, and that's rebellion against God and the rejection of his son. So please don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by even the best that the world has to offer or by the seeming stability and the security and the steadfastness of anything that we can possibly construct, no matter how seemingly substantial it appears. Because the Lord assures us that all of it is eventually going to come to desolation and ruin. There's only one thing that is sure and steadfast and secure, and that's the Lord himself. That's why it says in the Psalms that the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust. And of course, all of this message was likely lost on the disciples at this point. And yet there would come a point years from now as they looked back, surely they would understand the implications and then write about those for us. But for now... Imagine these disciples, right? They must have been walking in a daze as they followed Jesus out of the temple. They're probably reeling at what they just heard. Now, the next chapter, what it tells us is that Jesus and the boys were on their way back to Bethany. They were going to spend the night there in Bethany, back to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus from where they had just come that morning. So they were headed back out of the city and to the east, 
right, across the Kidron Valley and then up over the Mount of Olives, where we read next in verse 3, it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, it says that Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. Now, I want to pause here just to consider why it was that Jesus paused there once he was there at the top of the Mount of Olives, because I think that the reason is more than just to catch his breath. But instead, it's to complete for us this beautiful type, a beautiful picture in the scripture, because you Bible students already know this, but interestingly, in that very same visional vision of Ezekiel, as the, the glory of the temple depart, the glory of the Lord departs the temple, here's what Ezekiel goes on to record after it departs the temple itself. It says, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Which mountain is on the east side of the city? You guessed it, it's the Mount of Olives. So picture this, here we have Jesus, who the letter to the Hebrews says, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. John declares that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Here's Jesus, who's just departed the temple and now who just happens to stop at the top of the Mount of Olives. Is that a coincidence? Absolutely not. Surely, you know, perhaps he stopped for a rest after the climb, but more likely he stopped symbolically and prophetically as well as practically because he knew that this statement that he had just made certainly would have shaken these guys up. It would be provoking some thoughts and bringing up some questions, and he wanted to answer those for him. And of course, he was right, because these guys had a bunch of questions. Look what we read next. It says that as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, so now they're looking back at Jerusalem, it says Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So here are these poor guys. They've walked all the way up the Mount of Olives, no doubt trying to process everything that Jesus just said to them regarding the temple. And so they pose these two questions that Mark records here, right? These curious questions here up on the mountain. Now, Matthew's gospel, of course, provides us with a little more clarity in terms of understanding what comes next. Because in Matthew's account, he includes kind of a third question that they had asked. In Matthew 24, 3, it says, they asked, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they actually asked him these three questions, which were probably more like one question in their minds. And I kind of have this picture of them asking these questions like one after another in rapid fire, like the way little kids get riled up and they can rattle off a bunch of questions before you even catch a breath to answer the first question, right? Remember, in their thinking, you know, all of this revolved around the glorious age of the Messiah coming to earth. And their expectation was that he was going to remember, he was going to come in power and glory and destroy his enemies and rule over the world. And we know they thought this was the time. 
So now they couldn't understand if Jerusalem, and more importantly, if the temple was going to be destroyed, how would there be a nation for the Messiah to rule over or a temple for him to rule from? So the first thing they want to know is when is all this going to go down, right? When are all these stones going to be thrown one to another? Now, it's a logical question, which we just answered, Right? Historically, we know this happens in A.D. 70 with that invasion by the Romans. We can be very confident that this was fully fulfilled in that event because even today, scholars cannot really pinpoint where precisely the temple sat on the Temple Mount because there is absolutely no trace, at least archaeologically speaking, of where any stone may have been up there. So we see this literal fulfillment of that prophecy in AD 70, and that really sets the tone for the rest of the prophecies that we see in this chapter. We should expect a literal fulfillment of these other prophecies as well. But here's what's interesting. Jesus is never, we're going to see, he doesn't actually answer that question directly. He's not going to give them the date of this imminent invasion in AD 70, right? It was just 40 years from that time. Most of these men were alive when it happened. But he doesn't give them that date, I believe, because he wanted to set their vision. He wants to set our vision way beyond that. He does kind of speak to this question, but only really in the context of answering the other two questions about what's the sign of your coming, what's the end of this age. The, the disciples knew that the destruction of the temple had something to do with the end of the age and the ushering in of a new kingdom because they knew that it would take something cataclysmic for this to happen, right? What they didn't understand is that there was going to be this huge gap, this long period of time between the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the return of Jesus in glory. It's a period so far of 2,000 years. It's right where we are living today. But Jesus knew that now the time was right. Remember, he is in his final days with them but he knew that now the time was right to start to answer these questions. He knew that their faith was going to be tested, and he wants to give them the hope and the confidence that they would need to stand up for it. So what he's going to do now in the rest of their time together up here on the Mount of Olives is he's going to give them this very sort of a powerful panorama of the rest of human history. And we call this teaching the Olivet Discourse, because it's a teaching that Jesus gave to the disciples on the Mount of Olives looking back over Jerusalem. So it's the same thing you'll find in Matthew 24. You find it in Luke 21. This is the longest section of teaching that Mark records for us in his gospel. And yet, in his characteristic style, what Mark gives us is actually kind of a compressed version of Jesus' whole sermon, right? The fullest version, of course, is in Matthew. And so we're going to look at Mark 13, but kind of with Matthew 24 in mind. Mark, all he includes specifically is the prophetic portion of what Jesus taught. It points us forward 
pretty much to that tribulation period, right? That seven-year span. We're going to talk about it next week when the Lord pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world when he prepares Israel to receive her Messiah. It's the seven years that immediately precede Jesus' second coming, right? It deals primarily with the nation and the people of Israel, specifically because we, the church, won't be here during that time. And yet, as we look at this teaching as a whole, it has these profound as well as prophetic applications for us. And what we're going to see is that Jesus breaks things down into three sections, which we're going to look at over the next three weeks. First of all, he's going to describe future events on the earth. Then he'll describe this period of great tribulation for the earth, and then his future return to the earth. And as he does it, He's going to tell us how he wants us to act in light of all of it. So this morning we're going to finish up. We're just going to look at verses 4 through 8. It's really Jesus setting the, sp the stage because he's going to deal specifically with what are the characteristics of our present age, right? It was future to them, but it's the present for us. So he's going to describe for us what are the general world conditions conditions between the time of his ascension and the time when he returns at his second coming. So these are the things that we are living in right now. And I think you're going to see it's a pretty fitting description. And what I want to do is I'm going to start with this section actually at the end of the section. So just briefly, look it down at the very end of verse 8. Jesus is going to tell us that all the things he's about to tell us are just the he says, these are the beginning of sorrows, right? So Jesus says, look, all of these things that I'm going to talk to you about, things that are happening all around you, he says, understand that they don't in and of themselves signify the end. They're just the beginning of the end. He says they're the beginning of sorrows, which is very significant wording. The Greek word that's translated sorrows is what we think of as birth pains, some of your translations may already translate it that way. I actually love the way the NLT translates it. Jesus says, this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. So Jesus literally said, these are the beginning of the birth pains, which means that things are only going to get worse from there. Now, if you don't know the way birth pains work, let me mansplain it to you real quick, right? Birth pains, right, labor pains, what we would commonly call contractions, right, they speak of frequency and intensity as any one of the moms in this room would tell you, right? As a woman gets nearer to that time of birth, the contractions become more and more frequent and more and more intense, and there are some of us dads that have scars to prove that that is true, right? Like labor pains, all of the conditions that Jesus is about to describe, they're going to erupt and they're going to subside the closer we get to that time of delivery, right? The contractions are just going to intensify. So Jesus isn't saying that the things that he's going to list have never occurred in human history because they all have. 
But what he is saying is that as the end draws near, they're going to start to occur with greater frequency and greater intensity. And I think that we're going to see that it's exactly what we are seeing around us today. The contractions are getting more and more frequent, and they're getting more and more intense. So with that, we can look at the very first thing that Jesus says is going to characterize this present age on earth. Look back now at verses 5 and 6, because Jesus starts right out first with a warning about a coming spiritual deception. It says that Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. So right from the outset, Jesus warns his disciples that after his departure, many are going to be deceived as they anticipated his return, right? There's going to be this great religious deception that's going to come upon the world with a large number of these spiritual deceivers. Did you know that history shows us that just in the first hundred years after Jesus spoke these words, there were no less than 64 different men who came on the scene claiming to be the Messiah. And we see that these same kinds of claims made by false religions, made by false Christs, they are increasingly a part of our world today. And we think of everything from full-blown false religious systems, which of course have been around for ages. But think about the rebirth recently of all of the new age philosophies, all of the new self-help kind of followings. Think about what are really the relatively recent explosions of these pseudo-Christian cults. You think about Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian science, you realize all of these have come about only within the past 150 years. And all of these things are similar in that they all offer to have the answer. You think about all these different ideologies or movements or individuals that arise and take on this very messianic tone. Now, they might not say, I'm the Christ, literally, But they all say something similar like, you know, you can follow me and I'll deliver you, right? Because it's my thoughts or my philosophies or it's my approach or it's my policies, right? It's my way of looking at the world that is the salvation that's needed now by the world. And think about so many of the books that are being read or the podcasts that are being listened to. Think about how many of those have a real spiritual component to them, right? Where people are basically saying, look, I'm the anointed one, right? I have the answer to the emptiness and the problems, right? You become one of my disciples and I can lead you out of the emptiness and into this fulfillment where you're going to find purpose in life, right? It's going on all around us and of course... Now it's happening at an explosively increasing rate with the explosion of the internet and social media and the platforming that those two things provide. And understand, it is very significant that Jesus begins with this first. Because of all the difficulty, and we're talking about tremendous difficulty, but of all the difficulty that he is going to detail in these next few verses, all of these things that are going to continue to come upon the earth, 
Spiritual deception is his first warning because the consequences to falling prey to spiritual deception, those consequences are eternal. And as terrible as any of the rest of these things may be, they are temporal. Right, But spiritual deception is something that's going to outlive this life and it's going to determine where it is that we spend eternity. Right? If you're not yet a Christian this morning, it is so very important that you are not drawn into or taken advantage of or deceived by all of these different kinds of spiritual deceivers. And understand that the harder things get in the world globally or the harder they get in your life personally, the more that people are going to be looking desperately to anyone or anything that is saying something fresh or saying something new as long as they're saying it with confidence and with authority. Or what's amazing to me, especially here in the United States, where people for the most part, they have been raised with a knowledge of Jesus. And it's amazing to me that they are so quick to dismiss him because they're looking for something newer. They're looking for something fresher. They're looking for something better. And yet it's a deception because there is nothing that's newer or fresher or better than life in Jesus Christ. Amen? The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. And old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What could possibly be newer or fresher or better than that? And so Jesus says, take heed that no man deceive you because he knows that, that the enemy, right, Satan, by imitation, he wants to ensnare by counterfeiting everything that is truly of the Lord. And this is why we need to be rooted, and I mean deeply rooted, in a real and a biblical Christianity as it's revealed in the scriptures. Because as we learn the word, our roots grow deep so that we're not deceived when all of these false messiahs of our day are going to come along. And let me just say this also. If we know what the Bible says then we would know that the Bible says, it says in Revelation chapter 1, talking about the return of Jesus, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So when Jesus does come back, it's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be like, hey, man, I think I found this guy in, in this chat room on the Internet, and I think this guy could be Jesus, right? It is not going to be like that at all. When he comes, the Bible says everybody will know it, and they would know that if they would simply read and study what the Bible says. So we need to be on guard constantly against these deceivers who Jesus said we can expect are going to come, right? They are part of the beginning of these birth pangs. And then he continues, look at verse 7. He says, But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. So there won't just be this spiritual deception. There's going to be violent disagreement. 
And notice Jesus points out that wars in and of themselves, they don't announce the end of the age or the coming of the Lord. There have always been wars. There will always be wars right until the end because wars and rumors of wars are simply a constant reminder of man's foolishness in rejecting the Prince of Peace. But while it's true that war has been a scourge of mankind since the beginning of time, it is also true that there has been no period in history that's witnessed a greater number of wars or greater destruction brought about by wars than we have in just the past hundred years. Right? One study out of England showed that there has been an, um, the, the frequency of wars between the states has increased steadily between 1870 into the 2000s by 2% a year on average. So exponentially, just increasing. One author said this, that during the 20th century alone, more people have been killed as a result of war than all previous centuries combined. And this has resulted in hundreds of millions of people killed in wars like World War I, World War II, the Russian Civil War, the Congo War, Korean War, Vietnam War, Iraq. He said, today there are conflicts and wars raging all around the world. One more, one author said that the 20th century wars, he said, have been total wars against combatants and civilians. He says that the barbarian wars of centuries past were like alley fights in comparison. And you just think about the, the technology-based advances in weaponry and warcraft Right? We don't even have to get near people anymore. We just shoot rockets across seas to get to them. So the science of war has reached this pinnacle. Right? There was one atomic scientist who was asked which weapons would likely be used in World War III. And he said, I'm not sure exactly which weapons will be detonated in World War III, but I'll tell you which ones will be used in World War IV. Rocks. He says, yes, rocks will be all that's left if World War III ever takes place. Right? War is just this constant reminder of the sinful nature of man and our ability to destroy ourselves and our inability to govern ourselves. Right? And we need to keep in mind, people will never be able to solve the problem of war. The League of Nations couldn't solve it. The United Nations won't be able to solve it. No G7s or G8s or G20s, right? There's going to be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes to bring peace. It's all part of the beginning of sorrows. But until then, we can continue to enjoy peace. We can continue to proclaim peace individually, that peace that only Jesus can provide. Right? He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. He says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, then Jesus goes on to say this. In addition to wars and rumors of wars, look at verse 8. It says that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So, there will be actual wars, which are identifiable countries fighting against one another. That's war the way we've understood it. But Jesus says that in these days which precede his return, 
you'll have rebellions and factions within countries that will destroy those countries. So the Greek word there for kingdom is realms or different rulers of different groups. The word for nation is actually the word ethnos, which means a race of people or a tribe of people. And so what Jesus is actually saying is that ethnic groups and these opposing factions are going to rise up against one another. Again, the people that research this stuff, they say that conflicts within states now make up more than 95% of all conflicts. And the source of the conflict can be political or social or economic or religious, but where these individuals in the conflict have to fight for their ethnic group's position in society. And this kind of ethnic conflict is now one of the most major threats that we see to international peace and security. We think about the conflicts in the Balkans and Rwanda and Chechnya, Iraq, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, Darfur, right? Uh, some of the best known and deadliest examples, all of those from the 20th and 21st centuries, not to mention, of course, exactly what we're seeing now in the war with Israel and the Gaza. So this isn't a war between nations this is a war between ethnic groups and religious ideologies. And of course, as a result of these kinds of wars, we see destabilization of regions and provinces. We see all these other things that come with it, you know, these refugee crises, you know, and failures of government. And then you throw onto this burning fire, you throw the widespread use of social media as a platform and a weapon within these conflicts, just amplifying all of it. Now, on top of all this, you've got these massive armies that are formed all over the world that have no allegiance to any nation, but only have allegiance to themselves and their cause. And I'm thinking of you know, the Middle East and Africa, you think about the drug cartels of Central America, and you look at how precarious the governments there are because of this violence and the control and the corruption, right? Then on top of all of that, this is the last on top of, I promise, on top of all of that, in so many different places, you have radical Islam who's fighting a war against the entire world. But because the world doesn't really understand religion, and because the world doesn't really understand radical Islam, they don't understand that this is a war. All of this, Jesus says, the beginning of the birth pains. And so indeed, just as he promised, right, nation is going to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He says, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. So, so often when you've got widespread warfare, inevitably there comes famine, there comes disease, right? Which is what the world troubles actually means, right? And to these plagues, Jesus talks about earthquakes in many places, right? There's implying there's gonna be this increase just kind of in the natural convulsions as the end draws near. Now, we all know this, even in our time of extreme wealth, there's poverty and malnutrition that remains a daily reality for more than a billion people on this planet who exist somehow on less than a dollar a day. And as the population of the world grows, that number grows as well. 98% of these people 
live in these developing countries in Asia and the sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, one quarter of children under five in those regions are malnourished. And then to that you add troubles, or what Matthew calls pestilences, right? Plagues, COVID. You know, even before COVID spread, even before COVID stopped the world in its tracks, doctors had already been warning about a resurgence of these drug-resistant diseases, saying they were losing the battle against diseases that were once treatable, right? Vaccine-resistant polio, drug-resistant malaria, AIDS, Ebola occurring on the rise, right? But warning that the biggest threat possible was this threat of influenza, which is probably the most dangerous at all. Even before COVID, the World Health Organization already sent out a warning that the world needed to be preparing for a pandemic that was similar to the Spanish flu of 1918, which killed approximately 50 million people on this planet. And what happened after that? COVID, right? Killing between seven and 15 million. There was a, a Reuters article just before COVID that quoted them saying that the world will inevitably face another pandemic of flu and needs to prepare for the potential devastation that it could cause and not underestimate the risks, right? You've got type A, type N, type B, human flu, swine flu, bird flu, COVID, right? And now you've got all these flus that are combining and the fatality rate is up over 60%. On top of that, right, in an interview just a couple years ago, here's what one doctor said. He said, we have a complete breakdown of the basic needs of civilization in Los Angeles. We have three prongs of airborne disease. Tuberculosis is exploding, rodent-borne. We are one of the only cities in the country that doesn't have a rodent control program and sanitation has broken down. He also said that bubonic plague, also known as the Black Death, a pandemic that killed off millions in the 14th century, he says is likely already present in Los Angeles. So all of this is just part of the beginning of these birth pangs. If that's not enough, Right? Experts do say we're experiencing this unparalleled increase in the amount and the size and the locations that we're detecting earthquakes. Right? One research geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey just up in Menlo Park, he says this, we've recently experienced a period that has had one of the highest rates of great earthquakes ever recorded. Volcanic activity all also increasing all over the planet, a worldwide high in the number of annual eruptions being set recently. And some scientists warn of that trend continuing because volcanic activity is closely tied as both a cause and an effect of global temperature change. So at any rate, I don't think you need to be a scientist to see that seismic activity is on the rise. Now, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Right? Isn't this awesome? You got up, you had a couple of nice cups of French roast, you may, maybe avocado toast, right, something. And you came down here to worship and just to be encouraged in the Lord. And thank you, Pastor Bill, for ruining my week. <laughs> right? But hang in there. 
because I think it's about to get super encouraging, but it's going to happen in an admittedly roundabout way because here's what Jesus says next, what we just saw. All that spiritual deception, the wars, the rumors of wars, the nations rising against nations, the famines, the pestilences, the earthquakes. At the very end, Jesus already told us that all of that are the beginning of sorrows, right? These are the beginning of these birth pains because we are preparing for the birth of something that is so much better, the kingdom of God. Right? And if you can stand to even watch the news these days, what you see is no, there's no longer any kind of a lapse of time between the different crises around the world. They simply just seem to flow one right into another. And it's almost like, it's like we're at eight centimeters at this point, right? And the birth of the kingdom is so close at hand, right? Because just in the same way that a pregnant woman's contractions indicate that that child is about to be born, these universal conflicts and catastrophes are what are going to lead to the glorious birth of the kingdom age, well, where Jesus is going to rule righteously on the earth. But until then, Jesus says that we're going to witness and we're going to watch basically as the world is just going to systematically unravel on every level. It's going to continue to destabilize spiritually, politically, materially, physically. And that's why when we see these things increasing before our eyes, yeah, eventually it's going to come to collapse because Jesus promised that it would in the same way that he promised that those huge stones that looked so stable in the Temple Mount would be thrown down. Now, I can see the looks on your faces like, where's the encouraging part, right? But look back, notice in the midst, right in the middle of all that he's just said, look what he said there in verse 7. He said, when you hear of all of these things, what does he say? Do not be troubled. And it would, if it weren't Jesus who said it, it would be almost just a laughable thing to say. Right? Troubled, right? Don't be alarmed or disturbed or startled or terrified. Jesus says, don't be any of those things. And yet, what are we? We're all of those things, right? Now, how in the world can we live in a world like this and not be troubled? But the answer to it, according to Jesus, is to return to his reminder that all of these things are just these kinds of beautiful birth pains, right? He says, do not be troubled. Look what he says next. He says, such things must happen. Now, you all know I'm not a doctor, right? But I know enough to know that the baby doesn't just come out without the contractions, right? A woman doesn't just endure labor for nothing, but it's the joy of the birth of that child that makes it all worth it. And every woman knows that, that it's that joy at the end of the process that gives them the strength just to push through it. And all of these painful pangs are leading to something that is so much better in the birth of the kingdom. Something that is glorious and wonderful is about to be birthed just as Jesus promises us it will be. 
Now, remember the mindset around babies and birth in the ancient world. You read about it in the Old Testament because the birth of a child was a very, very big deal. So much so that a woman who couldn't give birth to a child, right, aside from any kind of a medical understanding, right, but simply from a cultural perspective, a woman that couldn't give birth to a child brought shame and brought disgrace. So much so that when that child finally came, they thought of it as the removal of that disgrace because the birth rectified a problem. And in that same way, when we see this planet going through all of these birth pains, right, the wars and the earthquakes and the pestilences and the famine, we can know that the world is readying itself for the rectifying of the problem caused by sin. The world is broken and the planet is decaying because the creation is under a curse. But something so good is going to come from all of this when the kingdom finally is birthed. And I was thinking about this as I was studying this week. And I think just on a personal level that there can be times in each of our lives when things feel like they are just unraveling on every level. Right, We feel like what we just read about the world. And yet then the Lord moves us beyond that. Right, He moves us through that difficult season. And what happens? He moves us through it only to find out that all of it was simply him preparing us for the birth of something new and something so much better. Yet so often during the, profit, the process, we are so focused on the pain that we're doing that we take our eyes off of Jesus. We take our eyes off of Jesus even though he is right there in front of us like a faithful husband and he's just encouraging us, what, just breathe through the current contraction is what he's saying, right? Just breathe through it, he says, because he knows that what is coming is so much better. And I think that the lesson of this passage, right? He teaches us, he explains so very calmly what's going to become of the temple. And he reveals so very calmly what's going to become of this world that we're living in. Because Jesus was not at all invested in anything physical in this world. Instead, what he is invested in is this spiritual reality. And that is not going to be interrupted at all by any of those things. And I think the whole point of this passage is he's trying to take our eyes off of the temporal and focus our vision on further onto the eternal. And so, yeah, he goes into this painful detail about what's going to happen in the world so that our hearts are not set on the world. But what it does is it keeps us looking up, right, because our redemption draws near. And we're looking ahead to the return of Jesus for the church at the rapture. And so as we close this morning, you know, we can look around daily and we see the world maybe becoming more and more fragmented, it seems, right before our eyes. But we all have a choice, Right? We can either allow the events of the world just to beat us up every day right, and terrify us every day and to kind of toss us back and forth each and every day. Or 
we can choose to walk out of this room this morning and say, God, I don't want this dying world to have that kind of a hold on me. But what I want is I want these things as they do unfold. As I watch these things unfold, I want them to be a reminder every day in my spirit in an increasing way that you are truly right at the door. And that you are about to return and that all these things that I'm seeing around me are simply a part of that process. Lord, I want to remember that the worse it gets, the closer you get. I want that to be my attitude, Jesus. And Lord, you know that I can't do that in my own strength, that that needs to be a work that your Holy Spirit does in my heart just to help me to process this world in that way and to maintain and to have that peace that you give in the midst of everything that's happening around me. That's our prayer. Amen? So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And we thank you for your word, Lord, as challenging as it may be, Lord, a passage like this, Lord. But we do thank you for the way that, Lord, it takes our minds off of what we can see right in front of us, Lord. And it, it puts our focus and our vision on beyond that, Lord, as we look to you. Lord, this world is not our home. Lord, our home is with you in the kingdom. Lord, our home is with you even now in heaven. And Lord, help us just to, uh, to travel light and to, to travel as pilgrims and sojourners here, Lord, and to keep our vision firmly fixed on you. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we do it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.